What's your secret sauce? As a small and micro-sized business, the most important thing you can do is engage your potential customers in a way that sets you apart from the competition. It's your secret sauce. If you don't have the recipe for it, you'll just look like everybody else in your space. Left Brain Right Brain Marketing has the recipe. Focusing on the needs of smaller businesses, Left Brain Right Brain delivers everything you need to build a great brand. So if you're ready to start serving up your secret sauce, give us a call at 503 961-3647 or check us out online at lbrbm.com. So here's the story. It was just another day at work on April 20th, 1999. I'm sitting at my desk in my office working and knowing me, I'm probably joking around with somebody about something. Around 11 in the morning, I hear a gasp out in the bullpen. Then, and oh my God, I went out to see what was going on. One of my coworkers was hunched in front of his desk, holding his head in his hands. I asked him what was wrong. He was maybe five years removed from graduating from Columbine High in Littleton, Colorado. He said it sounded like dozens of kids were killed. The details were sketchy at this point in the day. Remember, this is 1999, and people didn't have smartphones uploading live videos to YouTube or Instagram or Facebook. Yeah, there was such a time. We went into the break area and turned on the TV. It was a horror show. Twelve students and one teacher lost their lives that day, and 21 others were injured by gunfire, and three more as they attempted to escape. It was a nightmare come to life. So many innocent people and their families and loved ones had their lives turned upside down and destroyed that day. And that's what happens every time one of these things happens. Sadly, they've also become a part of the American way of life. Since 1991, upwards of 150 mass shooting live shooter incidents have happened. In fact, according to Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit that tracks incidents of gun violence in real time, said in May 2020 there were 59 mass shootings. The tally represents the highest monthly total since the organization started collecting data in 2013. Now, an important note on these numbers. The organization I mentioned qualifies a mass shooting as an incident involving four or more killed or wounded, not including the shooter. Also, as I was researching them, the numbers are all over the board depending on where you look and how they present and qualify their data. So I want to be clear, these are not definitive and the end all for data. We civilians probably think of mass shootings in terms of what happened at Columbine. But they also include incidents where bad actors are involved in criminal activity that goes bad. And those incidents really impact the numbers. And I acknowledge there's a lot that goes into why there is all that crime out there. But that's a topic for another day. There's also many other big issues at play here. Mental health awareness, gun control legislation, and a whole lot more. Those are also topics for another day and well worth talking about. But today, we're talking specifically about how law enforcement responds to these incidents and what you can do to save yourself and others around you if, God forbid, you find yourself in a live shooter situation. So talking with me today is a retired law enforcement officer, Jeff Chelowinski. He had a 28-year career in a mid-sized municipal police department. 
During that time, he served in the Patrol and Traffic Divisions as a Criminal Investigations Tactical Officer and in the Training Division. For the last 16 years of his career, Jeff served on the second largest regional SWAT team in the United States and was on the WMD Special Response Team as an operator, team leader, and trainer. He was also an instructor with the Cook County Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Today, he works at a private shooting range in sales and trains civilians in basic pistol and rifle safety and shooting techniques. This is Drew Zagorski. This is You Don't Say and Jeff Chelowinski is with me today. So, Jeff, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining us. Why don't you take us back to 1989 and to you retired, I guess, two years ago, right, roughly? Actually, three and a half, January of 2017. Three three and a half. Okay. So, um, if you could take us through your time with uh, law enforcement and what you saw over that almost 30 years in terms of how uh, the trends of mass shooting and, you know, did they become more predominant? I mean, I know they've always been with us, but it seems like over the past three, four decades, there's been a, a steadier stream. So talk us, talk us through that. Oh, all right. A little bit about my background. I uh, started with the mid-sized suburban uh, police department uh, in 1989. And by 1993, I was um, in charge of the training department there. I was uh, running the firearms training programs, the arrest and control, the uh, what citizens would call uh, uh, self-defense, um, legal use of force, where we, uh, where we reviewed policy procedure um, statutory law and of course uh, constitutional law regarding the use of force and trained our people and then by 2000 uh, I joined the second largest um, part-time SWAT team cooperative SWAT team in the country Uh, and I was there until 2017 when I retired uh, starting as an operator and finishing as a uh, a team leader on that team as well as uh, one of the primary SWAT trainers. Um, As far as mass shootings go um, mass shootings actually go back to the founding of this country. And before that, uh, in colonial times, there were actually, believe it or not, um, maybe not necessarily mass shootings, but mass killings, um, in schools in, in, uh, in colonial, uh, America. And that actually has continued over our whole history. Um, of course the, the incidents have gotten, um, more publicity and have gotten deadlier as, as weapons have advanced and, uh, and we have more media coverage in the country and there's and everybody, everybody on the street is carrying basically a news camera with them in their pocket. Yeah. There's a great prevalence of that, of course, as, as we know. Um, so, so these things have always been here. Um, it doesn't touch the lives of most people. Um, I've seen some things I've been involved in some deadly force incidents, uh, it's not something most people see or experience in their life. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be prepared for it. And uh, I think that's what we're here to talk about today, right? What can you do as a private citizen um, to be sure that you stay safe? Um, right. Because ultimately that responsibility for your safety is going to be yours. Uh, and that might be shocking for some people to hear, but I can tell you after 28 years with the police department, the police can't protect you. The fact of the matter is 
geographically. Uh, our country is too large. Population-wise, it's too large. Um, there's too many people and there's too few cops. You can't depend on the police to protect you. So you, you have to learn how to protect yourself. So, yeah, that, that's kind of the goal here is to have people come away with an understanding not only of what they should do, but if they're in that situation, what they need to know about how law enforcement responds to it. So why, why don't you kind of start there? All right, I'll, I'll start from the time I got on. Um, when, uh, when I started, um, there wasn't any mass shooter training. It wasn't something we trained for. Um, Columbine changed all that. The accepted practice until Columbine occurred was for regular police officers, patrol officers, to form a perimeter around the incident and to wait for SWAT to show up. And then SWAT would go in and do their thing. Uh, after Columbine, there was a great realization with the loss of life that we can't do that. Um, and, and this is sort of a... Meaning meaning, you have to go in. Right. We yeah. can't wait. And uh, what occurred out of that uh, was a, a system referred to as uh, rapid response. And it was really a push by... Um, for instance, uh, the Illinois Tactical Officers Association, which I was a member of, and, and many other such organizations in other states, it was really a, a, a privately funded uh, push to train officers in what was called rapid response. And the idea was for a team of four officers to arrive on the scene and to get together in a tactical formation and to move to the sound of the gunfire. And that worked for a while. Uh, a few incidents it was used, and then it began to evolve into uh, things that you would call a, 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 uh, an action team and a rescue team. And it got pretty uh, complicated from its initial uh, concept. And, and what occurred with that is, as with all things in, in our world, there is a great rush when an incident first happens and what can we do and how can we make this not happen again and how can we better prepare for it? And for a year or two, there was a great push for this and then it fell off. Uh, and as with any skill, any physical skill, um, you have to train constantly or you lose it in a tactical environment, making decisions on the run and life or death decisions on the run is very complicated and uh, it's fast moving and it takes a quick mind. And if you don't do it and practice it regularly, you lose it. Right. I, I, one of the podcasts I listen to frequently is uh, Revisionist History. And I think I mentioned this in a few episodes back when I talked to a friend of mine who uh, was both a firefighter and a police officer. And anyway, this Revisionist History podcast, they're kind of breaking down um, uh, a shooting wasn't a mass shooting. It was just one guy who, in the end, it was suicide by cop. But they brought in a forensic, I don't know what his title was, but he had something to do with forensic review of the video footage. And they were, because the host of that podcast, Malcolm Gladwell, watched the video on YouTube. And, you know, when you watch it, you don't see the whole video because you see what somebody posted on YouTube. You know, so his perception of what happened was this was an unjustifiable shooting. A citizen was gunned down, right? And he sat down with this forensics guy who really kind of showed him the whole footage 
you know, from the vest cam that the cop had on the dashboard cam, not just what citizen video showed. And that life or death decision that you talked about, that he kind of broke it down and made it really understandable that it's, it's like not even tenths of a second that you have as a police officer to respond to somebody who may or may not be raising a weapon to take you out. So I think, you know, I, I always encourage people to, to listen to that if they're into the podcast thing, because it put a whole different light on how much time you don't have to deliberate and wait to see what's happening. You just got to make a decision. That That's very true. Um, I, you know, I, and I know I, we don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this video thing, but I can tell you that uh, what you're saying is correct. Video can lie and video doesn't always tell the whole story. And usually we see video from one perspective. Uh, the other problem with video is it's very clean. There's no fear involved. There's no um, split yeah. of time involved. There's no sweaty hands and your mind going 200 miles an hour and uh, the whole scene filling your vision and not being able to think of anything else. And, and this comes back to training. A lot of people, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, for this skill or that skill, you have to develop muscle memory. There is no such thing as muscle memory. Your muscles do not have memory. What happens is you train and you train constantly and you put yourself into simulation scenarios, and that's how I train my police officers, and that's how we train on the SWAT team. And what you do is you develop <clears throat> and you maintain a, a short-term memory. And what that allows you to do is under stress when you can't really think and process well because your eyes are lying to you, your sense of hearing is lying to you, and sometimes even your, your eyesight's lying to you. What training allows you to do is create a short-term memory that allows your brain to go back and say, oh, I've seen this before, so now I know what to do and how to respond to this. And that's what training is, whether it's, whether it's athletic training uh, or whether it's, it's deadly force training. It's designed to give you a short-term memory so you don't have to waste time going back into your long-term memory and looking for a solution. If you haven't experienced it before, you're not going to know what to do. Uh, and this is going to be an important point as we talk. Um, back to the evolution of uh, active shooter response. Right. So we had these, uh, these four-man teams, and then that training fell off because the urgency wasn't there anymore. And uh, many of us in the field also learned that waiting for four people to get their um, was not really acceptable either because there's a lot of damage that can be done in seconds. Uh, in literal seconds, there's a lot of damage that can be done. So what, uh, what my department started to do and, and a lot of departments around me is we started teaching our officers to go in with two people and to solve a problem. Um, waiting for four, that might be a little bit impractical because everybody's going to a different spot and there's confusion and, but generally speaking, you can get two police officers on a scene pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So we started going to two man teams and the job of the two man teams was simply to go in, seek out the threat and stop it period. And that actually worked really well. But once again, it's training. It's about training. It's about training constantly. 
And there's always problems with that for regular police officers. A lot of it is administratively based. They put barricades and obstacles up to that because they say, well, we have other problems we, we need to take care of. We don't have the manpower. We can't, we can't put guys exclusively into training for two weeks uh, out of the year or three weeks out of the year, four weeks out of the year, because we can't pay the overtime. We don't have the funding. And as much as trainers like myself uh, bitch about that, it is, it is a fact. Um, so training is critical, but it's not always available. And this is still the problem in law enforcement today. Now, the two-man idea uh, sort of uh, had an evolution where we started putting school resource officers in the school. And uh, it was assumed that they would be that first responder, among other duties. And that has worked in some instances, and it has not in others. And, and I think what's happened now is it's come around, um, even though I've been retired three and a half years now, it's come around to the point where Police officers are expected in the, in the case of a mass shooting to go in alone and take care of the threat to stop it. Sometimes that works. Sometimes that doesn't. One of the more unfortunate uh, incidents was uh, the shootings in Florida where the deputy stood outside while the shooting the was going. club you're talking about? No, no, I'm talking about uh, about more recently. The school in Florida a couple years back where the, uh, where the sheriff's deputy stood outside despite the calls on the radio and hearing the gunfire outside the, outside the door he was standing out. Um, and, and the guy took a lot of heat for that. And personally, I think he should have taken a lot of heat for that. I personally think he didn't do his job. Now, the other side of this is that people have to understand that police officers are drawn from the population at large. So for every personality you meet in your daily life you, we've got the same people on the police department and and there are some people who simply don't have the will or the ability or both to face a deadly confrontation and uh, there's a lot of myths about police officers that and, there, and there's no way you're going to know until you're in that spot and in a lot of cases i'm yeah. sure it, you can sniff it out on a couple people here and there but yeah, but it, it's not it's not possible because what people do under stress, uh, real, true stress, is completely different than what they're going to do under everyday conditions. And uh, what what people have to remember is there's a lot of myths about police officers out there. Uh, well, they're they're all good with guns. Um, I know a lot of cops. I, I'm a gun guy. I always have been. Uh, most cops are not gun guys. Most cops. If they qualify with their service firearm once a year or twice a year, that's about the extent of the training they get. It, it, it isn't like that. The, there's, there's a lot of myths about cops out there, and people think that cops are some kind of Superman, and they're highly trained, and they're highly experienced, and they're, they're screened, and they're the best of the best. Um, not always true. Simply not always true. So I want everybody to remember that when you, when you think about the police – Think about the people you meet every day in your life, strangers, uh, family, friends, uh, acquaintances. Those are the same people that are cops. And, and hence, the, the, I think what we see today, you know, in any group, there's rotten apples, right? Oh, absolutely. No and, doubt about it. And, you know, that's a whole different conversation, but, um, yeah. yeah, but it happens. I mean, 
you know, uh, the, the, the office, you know, a business has an you know, office and they hire people who are, you know, in the interview, they look great. Um, they go through orientation. It's great. And then when they got to show up for work, you know, you got a problem or worse, that person becomes a threat to the people around them. So, it, I mean, there's, there's that. Right. Yes. So, P- police departments, uh, police departments, and the selection of police officers is no different, for the most part, than any other business that you would go into. Now, granted, there are uh, psychological tests and physical tests that police officers take. However, what everybody has to remember is that the psychological tests really are are driven to find out people who have traits as. They can be perhaps a team player. They generally will follow the rules. Uh, There's no obvious psychoses or psychological problems. I really think that one of the things that police departments need to do better is to screen screen their candidates. Um, Not saying that this is going to make everybody on the police department a superman that will go into a situation and save everybody's lives. However, uh, I think we uh, police departments need to do a better job of, of choosing the best of the best. And that all starts at the hiring process. Right. So, I mean, again, I think that is a whole nother discussion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, getting back to you, you, you kind of went in an evolutionary path from this crew, <laughs> highly trained crew in a special situation. And then sometime after Columbine, things kind of cooled off and simmered down. And then it got to be a two man per response. And then what we saw in Florida, one guy shows up. Well, yeah, one guy, one guy stood outside the door and didn't. Go yeah. Away. Yeah. That, um, I mean, now, now but, but the evolution now is that uh, for the most part, police officers, there's an expectation. Um, departmentally and of course from society that if you're a police officer and you show up at the scene, you go in and you end that threat period. Um, and, and not everybody's capable of doing that. The evolution of this all comes back to the simple fact that individuals are going to have to be responsible for their own safety and they're going to have to be tuned in. Um, the, the, being ready to survive these things is, is something that you have to practice every day. Uh, and I know that sounds daunting and people are saying, what are you crazy? I'm going to practice shooting people and running around court. No, that's, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, there, there are things that you can do every day in your everyday life, small exercises that I teach people that you can use to prepare yourself to face these situations and, and to do what you need to do. Now, in any armed confrontation, whether it's a mass shooting or uh, somebody, uh, somebody sticks you up on the street, um, you really have three choices. Uh, you can run, you can hide, or you can fight. Or in the case of one-on-one situation, you can just give it up and, and hope, things go, hope things go your way. Um, but really, in, in the type of situations we're talking about, your three options are to run, to hide, and to fight. Now, you're going to have to make that decision. And, uh, boy, it's uh, you got to train for awareness, okay? So, so now, just before you jump into this, these three choices you got to evaluate in your head while you're in a, again, you put, you know, the stress in that situation. 
as a citizen, you're there. The expectation from a law and what can I expect if I'm in a building where there's a shooter, my assumption can't be that a SWAT team is going to show up in 10 minutes. No. And, and resolve this. My expectation is that one, maybe more cops will arrive and hopefully, you know, like the Florida case, hopefully those who do arrive will come in to help. So my expectation, tell, you know, steer me if I'm in the, on the wrong lane here, but my expectation, if I'm in a citizen, I'm in a shooter situation and what my expectation of the police response will be is that I have to assume that police are on the way if somebody has reported it, but I can't necessarily expect a, a police officer to come in to my rescue. Um, I have to assume I got to do something for myself. Yeah. I, I mean, let's talk about the practicalities of this. Um, let's say that you work in a, make it simple. Let's say you work in a four-story office building. And there's a there's a active shooter in your building. Um, the first assumption is that you, or the first point you'd think you pointed out was you got to assume somebody called nine one one. My God, you hope somebody called nine one one. And whether or not you call nine one one is going to depend on how close that shooting is to you. Right. Um, so let's say it takes at best, or let's say it takes at worst. Let's say it takes at worst a police officer on the scene in two minutes. All right. Well, let's say at best at two minutes, the police officer gets there. Now I want you to think about something. How much damage can one person with a firearm do in 120 seconds? A lot of damage. That's two minutes. Now, not only that, but now you've got chaos ensuing. You probably have people running out. You probably have conflicting reports of what's going on. So a patrol officer shows up, he grabs his patrol rifle or his shotgun out of the car, and he does what he's supposed to do, and he goes into this four-story office building. He's got people shouting at him. There's a guy with a gun. Where is he? And you're getting all kinds of different reports because maybe when that person that's telling the cop uh, where the shooter was, maybe that was 30 seconds ago, and the guy was on the first floor. Well, in 30 seconds, he could be on the second or third floor. Now you got somebody else saying, no, no, the shooter was here in this stairwell at the other end of the building. And chaos is happening. And in the fog meantime, of war. Yeah, the fog of war. And in the meantime, the officer's trying to figure out what's going on and what he's really doing or what he should be doing is listening for the sound of the shooting and going toward it. Now, how long does it take him to get there if he can even hear it? There's a, there's a time element here that... It's it's not like a movie where you're on the first floor and you're going to hear gunshots on the third floor. Right, exactly. It's daunting. And um, this is why most of these shooting incidents end where the, the shooter kills himself before he even has contact with the police. It's very typical. And, and, and you think about all the ones you've heard about on the news. It always seems that the shooter kills himself after shooting a number of people. Maybe he runs out of ammunition. Maybe his anger has ran itself out. He realizes what he's done and he, and he shoots himself. Very rarely do these things end with a police officer coming in and taking the shooter out and ending the threat. So the time element here and the confusion. Alive, taking him out alive. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, taking him out as in, yeah, either taking him either out way. or stopping the threat. Yeah. Um, and what you said is very true, the fog of war. And I want, understand, I want people to understand uh, there is no doubt about it. That may sound fog of war. Well, this isn't a war. Well, yeah, it is. Uh, when there's shooting going on and you're in the middle of it, it's like being in a war. <laughs> there's no... There's no two ways about it. And yeah, the fog of war is present. So the time element, time, distance, it's all working against you and it's all working against the police. So you have to be prepared to either run, hide, or fight. But that doesn't just happen. Time for a break. We'll be back with more of our conversation right after this. Drew Zagorski here. Looking for a home loan? There's only one name you need to know. Teresa Springer of Movement Mortgage. Teresa brings decades of experience in lending, so she and her dedicated team will get you the right loan for your specific needs and probably save you a bundle of time and money in the process. How do I know? She's been my mortgage maven for years. So no matter where you live, if you're looking for a home loan, call Teresa Springer and the Mavens at Movement Mortgage at 360-798. 4161 or get the ball rolling by going to teresaspringer.com forward slash you don't say and clicking on the yellow get started button again that number is 360-798-4161 and the website is teresaspringer.com forward slash you don't say phonetically that's there's a springer.com forward slash you don't say Teresa Springer, NMLS 70667. Movement Mortgage LLC supports equal housing opportunity. NMLS ID 39179. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Movement Mortgage LLC is licensed by California Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act, number 4131054, Oregon ML 5081, Washington CL-39179. Interest rates and products are subject to change without notice and may or may not be available at the time of the loan commitment or lock-in. Borrowers must qualify for all benefits. Movement Mortgage is a registered trademark of the Movement Mortgage LLC, a Delaware limited liability company. Phew! the way you prepare to run, hide, or fight has to be an everyday conscious effort on your part. And it's a lot easier than it sounds because there's small things that we can do in our everyday lives from the moment we get up to the moment we go to sleep to prepare ourselves to run, hide, and fight. Such as? Well, you got to make these things part of your everyday routine. And they have to be simple to train without extra time devoted to the task. Okay. So think about working out. Everybody makes that great new year's resolution. Boy, I'm going to lose 30 pounds. I'm going to work out. I'm going to run every day. I'm going to do this and do that. Maybe you do it for a couple days, but if it's really taking a lot of extra time and you got a busy life, you don't do it. It's the same thing with training for awareness. It's got to be part of your everyday time, but it can't take extra time. You have to learn how to hardwire your senses. So One of the exercises I teach people is what I call good morning. Okay, it's very simple. So when you wake up in the morning, as your feet hit the floor when you get out of bed, you want to pause, okay? You want to take a moment and listen to the sounds around you. Listen to the sounds in your house. If it's summer and you have the windows open, listen to the sounds outside. Do you hear the birds? Is there a slight wind? Do you have wind chimes going in your yard? Listen actively and determine at certain points in the day what's normal what sounds normal in your home and you can extend this to your work instead of walking in the front door with your head down and jumping on the elevator and going to your office when you walk in that front door 
why don't you step aside for a moment, pause and listen. Listen to what sounds normal where you are. Okay, it doesn't cost you any extra time. Maybe it'll even give you a moment to relax before you 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 go ahead and you start your work day. Okay, but what you're doing is you're training yourself. You're training your mind to know what's normal and what's not. Awareness. It's very simple. Now, the next one is an exercise I call on the way, especially if you drive to work. Okay, so as you drive, you need to scan your mirrors inside, outside. You need to keep that scan going. At every traffic light you stop at, you know, what you got to do is you got to look left outside, inside mirror, right outside. Start paying attention to the vehicles behind you uh, when you drive and see if you can start to actively identify the vehicles by color and by profile. You know, is it a two-door, is it a four-door, is it an SUV, is it a van? And then progress to start identifying drivers. Is it a man? Is it a woman? What's that driver wearing? And, and the same thing as you walk. Let's say you park your car and you walk to your office. Now, as you walk, use your peripheral vision to observe your surroundings. Don't walk with your head down. Don't walk with your head in your cell phone. If you look like a victim, you're going to be a victim. And really, it's more important to use this time to train your mind and to train yourself to be observant. Use the mirrors of the cars or or glass windows that you're passing by to scan what's behind you in the same manner as you used your vehicle mirrors. So you see how you're being active now and you're not just walking or you're not just driving. You're actually doing something to train yourself to be aware. Now, on arrival, and we kind of touched on this, it's very much like good morning. On arrival at your destination, you want to pause momentarily. You want to listen to the sounds around you. You want to look at the people that are in the office. You want to see who's there, who looks like they belong, who doesn't look like they belong and seems out of place. And you also want to identify exits in any building you go into. Um, to this day, when, uh, when my wife and I go out and we'll go to a restaurant, she knows a couple things. She knows the first thing I'm going to do is look for where the other exits are. And she knows the second thing I'm going to look at is the sight lines to the front door where the threat is most likely to come from. And she knows the third thing is that I always want to have my back to a wall where I can see the front door. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's amazing. She'll get into a restaurant before me maybe and I'll go park the car and I'll come in and I'll go to our table. And that table is perfectly tactically situated. So even my wife has learned, uh, something about (laughs) um, being observant and being prepared. Uh, So that's on arrival, okay? Listen to the sounds around you. Look at the people around you. Identify the exits. Get familiar with where you are and how things operate, right? Right. And then good good night is the last thing, okay? So after you pull the covers up and and you turn off the lights, before you go into your slumber and snooze off into your your sleep, listen in the dark to the sounds around you. Now, the advantage of this is that in the dark, our sense of sight, which is dominant with us, tends to lessen because, of course, we can't see. And suddenly your, your hearing senses are elevated. And if you really listen closely to the sounds around you, you can hear what's normal. You can hear what's routine. This might even have a practical application in your everyday life if you've never have to use this to run, hide, or fight. Um, you might hear that some pump not working in the middle of a rainstorm. 
you, you might hear the water leaking out of your, out of your faucet or something, mm-hmm. but you, you really got to listen, uh, listen in that darkness and, and start to tune your sense of hearing and depend on that more. Very, very important to listen to things rather than see things. So those are, are so once again, just, just a quick reminder, what we covered is good morning right. on the way. Okay. On arrival and good night. And all and you're doing, about, it's all about dialing in your senses. Correct. And it's about using the environment around you in the case of, of uh, on the way. It's about using things that are there. If, if you're working in an area where there's a lot of glass storefronts and you're walking by or there's a lot of parked cars, use those things that are there that you probably never thought of to understand and to see what's going on around you. Use the reflections in the glass. Use the car mirrors as you're walking down the street to see who's behind you. Um, there's a lot of things you can do to keep yourself safe and be aware and to use the technology or the products that are around us that most people don't think of every day. Very, very important to tune your senses. So, so really that's about it. I, I, it's a very simple exercise. I don't want to belabor it. Um, but as you said, take the time to tune into what you're doing. You know, that's what it's really about. So your self-defense options. Now we're going to talk about run, hide and fight and, and, and how you apply those concepts. So run, okay, by making the exercises of on the way and on arrival part of your daily routine, you're going to know where you can escape to because it's very important that you you remember that you can't run blind, but you can run to escape. If you run blind without any type of plan or any knowledge of the layout or without listening to what's going on, you're invariably going to run into trouble, okay? You can't panic, but you can run to escape. And that's why on the way and on arrival are so important. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's talk about hide, the self-defense option of hide and, and how these exercises tail in here. So the principles of run, okay, also apply to hide. Now it is imperative that when you hide to listen to what's happening around you. So when you're hiding, you often limit your ability to see, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, what takes over then? Your sense of hearing. Your sense of hearing will let you know when it's time to run again. And the on-arrival exercise is going to provide you with your route of escape. So I hope everybody can see how running, you can't run blind, but you can run to escape. Sometimes it's time to hide again. You have to use your sense of hearing because most likely your sense of sight is going to be diminished or ineffective, right? Right, right. You get, you got a live shooter who's moving around a building. You run, you turn a corner, and you see him again. Exactly. And now you're, you're back in a hide situation. Right. And, and on arrival, the exercise of on arrival will provide you with your escape route, okay? Now, if you can't run and you can't hide, well, you're going to have to fight, okay? Uh, if your observation determines there's no place to run or hide, you may have to fight. Now, everybody says, well, how do I fight? Well, my answer to that is you have to train for that. Um, I hear all of this stuff in a lot of these surviving active shooters about throwing staple guns and, and throwing telephones and books. That's can be sometimes effective to distract or delay. 
But ultimately, especially in the case of a, of a shooter, you're going to have to close with that person if you can, as best you can at some point, whether you're trained or not. And, and you're going to have to stop that action if it becomes personal and up close. This takes, uh, boy, it takes, of course, courage, which is nothing more than overcoming fear. All right. And it doesn't necessarily take any special fighting knowledges in martial arts or firearms tactics. Um, listen, it's very simple. There's vulnerable parts of the body we all have. And I'm not talking about the groin. I'm talking about taking away people's ability to see and taking away people's ability to breathe. And that's all very simple. But you have to have the will to do it. Gouging somebody's eyes out when you're in close if they're going to hurt you. Um, going ahead and, and, and taking your fist or, the, or what's called the knife edge of your hand uh, and, and striking them hard in the, in the throat to perhaps swell up the larynx, to break the larynx and swell it up so they can't breathe. The vulnerable areas of the body, the eyes and the, and the throat. But you have to have the will to do that. And this is the problem with fight. This is, this is where most people, if they end up in a situation where they're cornered, they have to fight. This is where a lot of the failure comes from because fighting is not necessarily about technique. There's very simple, easy techniques. Fighting is really about will. And most people have not trained to develop the will to fight. Right. Uh, it's about everyday practices to increase your sense of awareness and to give you a plan before the shit hits the fan. But ultimately, if you have to fight, that's the tough one for most people. Um, but I would tell people, if you have to close on someone with a firearm or a knife that's trying to hurt you, remember to either take away their ability to breathe or take away their ability to see or both. That's the easiest solution in a very difficult task. You know, I, I'm just going to say this as, as somebody who's never been cornered by a guy or a person with a gun or a knife, right? A lot of people, their instinct would be if they have to close with this person, and especially, particularly if it's a guy, to try and kick him in the balls, right? Right. Why should that not be attempted? Well, <laughs> here's why. If, if, you, if you don't really know how to fight and you don't really know how to kick it could be very easy for that kicking motion to be turned against you uh the other thing is if you're kicking you're still necessarily at some length away and believe it or not with a gun or a knife the closer in you are to that threat which is actually the person not the weapon the closer you are into that threat the better a chance you have of stopping that threat uh, the other thing is, quite frankly, there's some people out there who have been kicked in the balls a lot and it don't affect them. They're right. going to keep on fighting. Um, if you can't see, you can't necessarily fight effectively. And if you can't breathe, you can't fight. And that's why I'm saying uh, if you got to fight, if you're cornered and you have to and you have the will to do it, you don't really need fancy techniques. You, you simply need to understand take away the air or take away the vision and then you can escape. And I'm not telling people you got to stay there and wrestle this guy to the ground and, uh, right, and right. do all this crazy stuff. I'm saying, take away him and get moving. Yes. Take away his ability to see you run away, 
take away his ability, pursue you by taking away his wind and get out of there. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a practical self-defense application. But once again, it all comes down to the will and overcoming fear. And that's really what courage is. Courage is overcoming fear. Right. So we're in the building. There's a shooter there. The shooter gets taken out or we gouge their eyes out or punch them in the throat and we get out. And then once the whole incident's over, what, what do people know, need to know about the resources that most cities, municipalities offer for the people, the victims who were involved in a situation like this? What resources should they know that they have available to them? That, that, uh, that varies, of course, by municipality and right. by state. There's resources at both levels. Most police departments or most uh, states have uh, social workers available that can uh, direct you to those resources. But uh, let's talk about something more important first, and that's um, surviving after the active shooter is over and, and the police are in the building. So <laughs> it's not over yet. So the, the aftermath resources are very important. However, there, there's one part of surviving an active shooting incident that most people overlook, and that is surviving the police response. And, and I'm, uh, I know that sounds like, oh, God, what, the police are going to shoot me? If you don't do what the police say, you might have a problem. And, and let me explain this. Now, if you think that situation was tense for you, and you're upset, and you're not thinking straight, and, and you're having a problem, don't you think the police officer is doing the same thing? The police want to survive and live and see their families just like you do. So let's talk about this. So you've been hiding, and you've done it effectively, and the shooting incident is over, and the police come into the room where you are, the area where they are, and the first thing they say is, everybody put your hands up, get on the ground, and lay still. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, in situations like this, listen carefully and do exactly what the police tell you. Don't be turning around to grab something out of your desk. Don't be grabbing something out of your purse. Don't go ahead and, and, and go grab your jacket to put your jacket on. Do what the police say. Do it mm -hmm. immediately and do it without question. And you have to listen carefully. Because I'm telling you right now, if there are two cops in that room and they're both yelling, you're going to get two different orders. So you need to be very careful about what you do when the police come in because tensions are high. And the police don't know if there was one active shooter or two or three. They don't know. And if you do something silly like go into your purse really quickly to get your cell phone to call your significant other be you want to let them know you're okay or you go grabbing into your desk drawer for something or you go grabbing your suit jacket off the back of the chair it's possible that police can take that as a threat and you might end so, up short so a, a quick question you mentioned you said if two officers come into the space you're going to be getting two different commands it's possible it's possible Yes. So how does the person, if one of them is saying, you know, keep your hands out, lay flat on the ground, the other one is saying something different, how do you know which to respond to? 
Well, you don't. And this is where you have to be aware and think of things. Now, the threat of a weapon is always going to come from the hands, all right? So police mm -hmm. always watch the hands. Now, the best thing to do is not make sudden moves, but if the police come in, you want to open your hands up wide with the palms facing outward and spread your fingers out. You don't have to keep them high up over your head. You just have to keep them out in front of you. Do not put your hands near your waistband or reach around behind you for any reason. Right. Don't. If nothing else, if there's two police officers, you one yelling, get down, one yelling, stay where you are, the best thing to do is to open your hands wide, your fingers spread with your palms visible and keep them in front of you and don't move and wait. Now, it's possible that the police might be amped up and they might push you onto the ground. If that happens, deal with it later. All right. Mm -hmm. Don't argue with the cops at the moment. Don't do anything silly. Bad things happen. If you're treated, here's, here's, here's just another thing for people. If you're treated badly by a police officer on the street, the worst thing you can do is argue with the officer there on the street, especially if the officer is emotionally charged or is, seems to be losing control or is not completely in control of himself. You can always deal with that situation later. Don't do anything to put yourself in a bad situation where you could get hurt. So, for example, pulling your phone out of your pocket because the officer doesn't know what you're pulling out of your pocket. You're exactly. Your is you're like, fuck this, I'm taking a video. Yes, and, and furtive, quick movements to your waistband or to your pockets. If someone's going to have a weapon, the most likely place for it is in the waistband or in the pocket right or in a purse in the case of a of a, of a female do not make furtive movements into your purse your waistband your pockets keep your hands out in front of you with your palms visible and your fingers spread so no fast movements hands out front fingers spread out yes exactly um so you have to survive that that police response and I know that sounds terrible and people are going to say, well, that just proves that the police are brutal. And well, you have to understand if you're stressed out by this situation and you're fearing for your life, don't you think the officer is too? And fighting with the officer or, or getting offended at the time and saying, well, I'm not doing that because I have a right to guys, you got to think about your own best interests. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying all police officers are out of control and are going to do that. Once again, we go back to it's a cross-section of society. The same people you meet in your daily life every day are the same people who are on police departments. And I'm telling you right now, generally speaking, training, consistent training in police departments is lacking. It's lacking, and that's the bottom line, and there's, there's no tiptoeing around it or soft-shoeing it, most police officers are not trained anywhere near where they should be. So you have to remember that. They're going to right. react like people. One of you has to keep a clear head. And if it doesn't seem to you that the police officer is keeping a clear head, then you have to. 
um, because cops are not supermen. Now, I'm not saying I, I know I'm creating an impression where, where you're going to encounter some crazy police officer who is scared to death and is not functioning. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm saying. Um, you, but you have to be prepared for that because honestly, most cops are, are going to try and do the job right. They're going to try and do a good job. They're not always going to accomplish that because they're scared too. But most experienced police officers uh, have been in these tense situations enough that, that they can actually think and, and, and navigate their way through this safely. But occasionally you might come up against that guy who maybe he's new, maybe he's a rookie, maybe he's only been on two, three months and, and has never mm-hmm. faced this. And once again, I can't say it enough. Remember that police officers are your neighbor. They're your brother-in-law. They're your brother they're your mom, they're your dad, okay? They come from the same place you do, and they're going to have the same phobias and everything else. And on top of that, most police officers and police departments do not train anywhere nearly enough for these type of situations under stress. They don't do it. Simply don't do it. Right. So, you know, how can they? Because, again, this is a whole different topic, but police have been asked to do everything right and you can't train for everything and i i would guess even with even if you had a a pretty solid training regimen program for shooter type situations the training that you get is is either going to be not with live rounds or with pop-ups and things like that which you know, it, it, I would guess a person could probably go through that time and time again and get used to it. And they're comfortable in that situation because it's not the real deal. But you get into a live situation. And even with all that training, the training will take over to a certain extent. But when you're faced with it in real life, uh, you know, the brain is a pretty interesting thing. It's going to react in different ways, right? Correct. And, and, I can only speak from my experience. Now, uh, I'll tell you that um, generally speaking, SWAT teams across the country are, are, are well-trained, most of them. And SWAT officers, of course, get extra training above and beyond. Now, but they don't at, necessarily respond to every no, shooter, mass shooter situation. No, they don't. They eventually right. might get there, but usually by the time they're there, that situation is over. Now, I was fortunate in my agency – uh, I had great support from my administration, my regular patrol officers and detectives. We trained every month in a topic except for December because of vacations and July because of vacations. Right. But my administrators actually allowed me to train guys on duty every month we had some type of lesson, whether it was a shooting lesson uh, a shooting lesson where we did tactical maneuvers on my range and shot at pop-up uh, targets. We actually used those on my range at my police department. Um, it was arrest and control tactics, or it was self-defense training, you know, fighting, which is how to properly fight and how to use effective techniques to stop someone from fighting you as quickly as possible with the least amount of damage possible. Uh, we also had a yearly use of force review. Um, all of my officers went through it with me. They, we reviewed policy and procedure, state statute, as well as constitutional law regarding uh, case law. 
in the use of force area. Um, but it, we also did a two-week session every year where officers would come off the street for two hours in pairs, and they would go through simulation training. In other words, my other trainers, we would present them with situations, uh, traffic stop training, or an active shooter scenario. And we use what are called marking rounds. So a marking round is an actual projectile that you fire out of your duty gun with a conversion kit. And it's a paintball in effect. It's filled with colored detergent. So my officers actually had the benefit of developing that short-term memory where they faced an active moving threat who was shooting at them. Now, given it, of course, was a marking round with colored detergent in it. But if you got hit by one of these things, they're moving at about 450 feet a second. It stings and you know that you messed up <laughs> or, right. you know, but, but the point of that was that they got to train with people actually confronting them with deadly force, and they had to develop a short-term memory for these situations. And that was a great advantage. Um, But of course, not every police department has that type of training or has the administrators who are willing to back you up on that. I was very fortunate. Uh, But that is not, believe me, that is not the norm. Um, Most officers, if they qualify with their duty firearm once a year, that's probably the extent of it. And, and police need more than that. Police really need the training program that I had at my department. That's the kind of training they need. But now the question comes in, uh, m- mine was a mid-sized agency. I had an administration that backed me up. So how do you take a department like, uh, let's say, Portland PD or Chicago PD or New York PD, and how do you do that? How do you train them every month in something? There's so many officers There's so few trainers. There's so few facilities. There's so much going on in a larger city like that. There's budget issues. There's manpower issues. I I really don't know what the answer is because I can only speak from my perspective. But I can tell you that officers need more training and they need simulation training that puts them in situations where they can develop a short-term memory so they can effectively and efficiently react to things like that. What that all boils down to is what we're here talking about. Right. So you're really going to be responsible for your own safety. Right. So to kind of bring it all back around to a conclusion is if God forbid, anybody finds themselves in a live shooter situation, first, the understanding of what, what can I expect? Well, I guess let's back up this train working with your own senses, your, your own sensibilities, the good morning, on the way, arrival, good night, you know, getting in tune with sight and sound about your normal surroundings, your normal everyday thing. What sounds out of place? Who looks out of place? Where's the door? You know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So you're kind of sharpening your own senses. And unfortunately, that's just the world we're in. And so once you have that, then if, if again, God forbid it happens, you're stuck somebody's shooting, understanding that the police response uh, is happening. It may not happen as fast as you want it to. And the number of officers who arrive at a given moment is going to be inconsistent. And there's the human factor involved in it. You know, um, how, how is somebody actually going to react uh, as a law enforcement professional who shows up? Is that training and courage going to move them through the barrier, 
through the door to go in. So you that you don't know. So you have to assume I'm taking care of myself right now or yeah. the people around me. And so having dialed in those senses and being in that situation, your best advice is get out as fast as you can, as long as it's safe to do so. Right. Uh, the, if you are in a position where you're cornered or unable to get past and this live shooters in front of you and you need to confront them, you need to do it in close. Yes. Uh, aim for the eyes, aim for the, uh, airways, the throat, in the sight, take away the ability to breathe. Two most important things to winning a fight. And you got that person grabbing their throat or their eyes. Don't wait to see what happens next. Run. Yes. You yeah. don't need to finish that fight. No, you need to uh, do enough to get away. Right. So I think the conversation here today, uh, hopefully will give people some things to think about, some things to kind of um, sharpen their own senses in their day-to-day lives, and then help to get them to a place where if, if they're in a situation, they've got some tools to work with um, yeah. that, you know, Maybe as as traumatic as the next day might be, at least there will be a next day. That's exactly it. And um, a quick review, as you already did, remember that your self-defense options are run, hide, or fight. Right. And remember, if you run, you can't run blind. you got to know where you're running. Right. And when you hide, you have to depend on your sense of hearing to tell you what's going on to make a decision whether you need to start running again or continue to hide. And finally. Finally, if it comes to fight, you can throw books, you can throw staplers, phones, whatever the distraction is, but that's only a distraction. If somebody has a gun, if somebody has a knife, you need to get in close. You need to have courage, which simply means overcoming your fear, and you need to take away the sight or the breath. But you have to have the will to do that. You have to be prepared. Unfortunately, in our world today, you have to be prepared. For you, you have to be prepared to defend your family. If you don't believe in doing that armed, and that's a whole nother subject. Uh, right. G- being a concealed carry holder is one thing. Actually knowing what you're doing, knowing when to do it and how to do it is a whole nother option. If you have to fight, do as much as you need to get away and run like hell. But, but, you, but you have to, ultimately, you have to depend on yourself because if you're lucky, the police might save you. I wouldn't count on it. Straight talk. Well, Jeff, thanks for sharing your knowledge and insights today and for the decades of service you gave to your community. Um, and I hope that people will listen to this and take it to heart and, and start thinking about not living in fear, but being prepared. That's so, right. Yes. I'm Drew Zagorski. This is You Don't Say. Peace. Thanks for listening in. To listen to more episodes, visit us online at youdontsay.net or wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Deezer, and many, many more. If you have a story to tell, if you know somebody who does, or if you just have a few ideas on topics you'd like to hear conversations about, shoot us an email to info at youdontsay.net. Thanks again, and we'll see you in the next episode.